welcome to Spirit of the Camino, a podcast about the unique and magical experience that is the Camino de Santiago. Join us on this adventure and discover the spirit of the Camino for yourself. Hello, and welcome back to the Spirit of the Camino podcast. I'm Nick, and I'm joined, as always, by Wendy. And it's day six of our Camino Português Interior, the CPI. And we're in Villa Real, which is one of the main towns of this Camino. And it's hard to believe that we're already more than halfway through the CPI. That is very hard to believe. I mean, that uh, is perhaps a little bit misleading because our pilgrimage is going to last significantly longer than that. The CPI itself goes from Viseo to Berin, so just across the border into Galicia. But we will, of course, continue all the way to Santiago, and then we're hoping to continue beyond that to Mushia as well. Uh, so we're not halfway through our Camino, our pilgrimage, but yeah, we are actually about halfway through the CPI portion. Yeah, so we have budgeted for 10 days for the CPI, and so we're on day six, and it's about 200-ish kilometers in total. So yeah, yesterday in terms of days marked the halfway point. I had a big fit of uh, allergies and sneezing and whatnot last night, so we couldn't record then, but we'll do it today instead. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually this, I think, marks a, an interesting point. I would say, you know, up to this point, we've walked in two specific areas, let's say, and then we have a, a third area that's coming. Villa Real is perhaps a, a break point on the Camino, and so we'll, we'll talk about that. But basically, to kind of divide the Camino that we've walked so far, I would say the first four days was this period where we were walking towards the Doro Valley, but we hadn't reached it yet. Then we spent the last two days in the Doro Valley, and now from Villa Real, we're kind of now out of that area, and we're now in this region that we mentioned last time called Trasus Monts, so beyond the mountains, and then that's going to be the rest of our CPI until we hit Spain is going to be in this area. So I guess you could say they're kind of, you could divide it up into three sections perhaps, and we've done two of those sections now. Yes, that that middle section, the second section is pretty short because it is the Doro Valley, which is just, you know, once you cross the river, I mean, it doesn't take very long to cross through one side of the valley and into the over the other side as well. Um, but we did stay, we had similar scenery, even if we weren't technically, you know, looking at the Doro Valley, we were perhaps on a tributary. I don't really have a great idea geographically of exactly where we were, but the scenery looked very similar in that we did still see lots of terraced vineyards, you know, grapes growing on um, on these ravines of rivers that were nearby the Doro, even if they weren't exactly the Doro. Yeah, there's a few tributaries that flow into the Doro. But, you know, I would say if you're in the Doro Valley, it's not just when you can see the Doro River, but it's, you know, just a little bit on either side of of the river. And, yeah, the scenery, like you mentioned, is is similar in, in those parts. So, yeah, that's been a short part of this Camino, but it's a very memorable part. And so it's something that we're going to talk about today. I would say, though, as we mentioned last time, that because we were familiar with the Doro, because we walked in it last year on the Camino Torres, and we said also that we had been to some of these places in Trasus Montes. Really, the unknown for us was this first part, mm-hmm. walking out of Viseo. And we hadn't been to these areas before, and we didn't really know exactly what to expect. There's not a huge amount of, of writing online for people who have walked the CPI. Uh, so we didn't really have a great idea of what these first four days represented, but we really liked it. 
We did, yes. It was a very rural Camino for the most part. Uh, not a lot of road work walking. There was a bit here and there, but uh, for the most part, we were on dirt tracks and going through very small villages, and um, we had it all to ourselves. Yeah, we did have it all to ourselves. We have not yet met any other pilgrims. We did meet two interesting walkers um, yesterday, and we'll talk about them uh, in a little while. But yes, we had it to ourselves, and we were looking at the registers on the albergues, for example, just to see what kind of pilgrim traffic there was. And on the first night, we saw that there'd only been one person registered in the previous two weeks. Mm-hmm. And so we're just coming up to what should be the high season. Uh, it's mid to late May as we're walking. And so that kind of gives you an idea as to how many people walk the CPI, which unfortunately is not too many. Yeah, and I'd say that it is unfortunate um, because, you know, it has really good infrastructure. We'll talk, I guess, a bit later about the albergues and logistics and things like that. But that infrastructure is there and a lot of work has been put into creating that. And it's been there for a few years from what I understand. I mean, I know that there are some more albergues that continue to open and there's some more that are that are coming. Um, but it has been, you know, walkable and you can stay mostly in albergues all along the way if you want to. You know, that that has been possible for some years now, and yet still not many people are doing it, which, you know, I find to be a real shame, and I, I wonder why that is. I wonder why, you know, there are a few Caminos that are really, really popular. Of course, the Frances is always going to be the most popular Camino. Um, and then you have others like you know, the Camino Portuguese, what everyone thinks of as being the Portuguese Camino, when in fact there are quite a few Caminos that went, run through Portugal. And most people don't really seem to be aware of those other Caminos that run through Portugal. Yeah, definitely. We were talking about this just a couple of days ago and how, yeah, people just think of this one, which is the CP. And then there, some people are aware that there's a central and a coastal option there. And so they think, okay, there's sort of two of these Caminos in Portugal. And so we were talking about that. And then what was quite interesting was that yesterday when we were in Peso de Hegua, which is one of the towns just, well, it's the town that's on the north side of the Douro River. And it's quite, it's an ugly town. We don't like it very no. much. Um, but there, it's quite a tourist center. There are tourist buses that go there because you can have views of the vineyards and whatnot. And so we had stopped just past the pedestrian bridge and we'd, it was our first stop of the day and we'd walked about 10 kilometers and we stopped to eat some th- something for breakfast and there was a bench there and it was interesting that so there were quite a few tourists who were walking along the bridge and three different people came up to us and saw that we had shells and asked us questions about it and what was interesting was that they were all familiar with the Camino certainly two of them said that they had walked Caminos before and all of them asked us basically a variant of the same question which was sort of why are you here and where exactly are you going and how come you're so far from Porto? Right. Um, and so the, one of the questions literally was, are you before or after Porto? Mm-hmm. Um, one of the other ones was, you know, did you start in, in Lisbon? Sort of how did you end up here? And then someone else said, are you walking the coastal? <laughs> and we said, no, we're very much in the interior here. But basically these were people who were familiar with the Camino Portuguese. And then just thought, well, how does where you are fit into that? Mm-hmm. And then we sort of said, no, we're on this whole other route here. And, you know, we're not going to Porto uh, on this Camino and it's further inland and, and all this kind of stuff. Um, and one of the guys actually did say, or did mention that he had walked the interior 
mm-hmm. route, which is what we mentioned last week, that people sometimes confuse the central route from Porto with the interior, which is what we're walking now. Yeah, um, when he said interior, he meant Portuguese central. Mm. Um, and so that was just interesting that these were people who were pilgrims or who were familiar with the Camino, but still didn't really get that there was more than one Camino in Portugal. Even though they knew that in general there were several other routes, like one of them in particular, he was a tour guide, and he he was very knowledgeable about the Camino in general, and he talked about all of the different Caminos that he had walked. You know, he named the more common ones, the Frances, the Norte, the Primitivo. Uh, he named San Salvador as well and said something like, you know, I've done almost all the Caminos or basically all the Caminos that you can do, which is Obviously not true, because, you know, if you look at a map, the Wise Pilgrim map, for example, you'll see that there are dozens that uh, are out there in existence. And he, even though, yeah, he knew a lot about the Camino and had walked it several times, he had no idea at all that this one existed. So, yeah, that's something I think is worth pondering. Um, You know, how do you get people who are interested in doing Caminos, how do you get the word out about this one and about some of the other lesser known ones um, to kind of spread the love a bit? Because, you know, you mentioned that this is the high season and it is really busy right now on the Frances. Uh, We've been following comments in the forum and everyone saying that, you know, there's, there's quite a bed race and it's really busy and you need to book ahead. And then here we are completely alone. No pilgrims at all to be seen. And I don't expect that we'll see any while we're on this whole Camino. So, yeah, I think that there there should be a way to, to balance that out a little bit and um, to get the word out about all these other options that are out there. Yeah, what we've been talking about in the last episode and previously is this idea of building a Camino, but I guess there are really two parts to it. It's it's building it and then it's promoting it. Mm-hmm. And I think what's happening here, especially in Portugal, is that the governments who are responsible for building it are then stuck on this part of promoting it. Mm-hmm. So this is yeah, slightly insider info, but um, I was talking with someone a few weeks back about how the Caminos to Alentejo and Ribetejo, who have built these three Caminos in the south of Portugal are now trying to ask other people for help in terms of marketing. Yeah. They say, okay, we have this now. It's here. It's walkable. It's great. But why doesn't anybody come? And and who are people who should come? And how do we find them? And how do we reach them? Yeah. And so I would say in the CPI, they're probably dealing with, with similar things there. Right. And, and marketing is the key, really. You know, it, it's not enough to build it. You do have to let people know about it. And, you know, probably that means social media in this day and the age. That's probably how you would do that as opposed to putting up posters in tourism agencies, etc. But, yeah, I think there is some work that needs to be done and that, you know, would probably pay off if it was done in the right way. Anyway, so returning to these first four days before we hit the Doro Valley, uh, we walked through a lot of forests, especially late on the first day and through a lot of the second day. And these were very nice forests. There was a lot of ferns uh, at the ground level and they were mostly pine forests as well. We saw some eucalyptus, which uh, has a negative connotation sometimes on the Camino, but these weren't eucalyptus plantations. These were wild eucalyptus trees, so it's, it is different. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess that... They're not endemic, as far as I know, to Spain and Portugal. So they were brought over at some point. But yeah, it wasn't a plantation like you normally see or as you often see where, you know, they're obviously 
planted in very straight rows and you know it's a it's a commercial business where they're growing them as fast as they can so that they can cut them down here what we saw was more interspersed with other vegetation as well so it seemed a bit more natural and they were mostly pine forests and this was very nice to walk through and uh, the, the trail was very nice there were quite a lot of ups and downs yes uh, i think on the second day we had about a thousand meters of ascent uh, and in so, total, yeah. not 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 continuously, but because we were going up and down throughout the day, overall that added up to about a thousand meters. Yeah. Yeah. So I would say, in general, not just these first four days, but but the first six days that we've walked so far, there are quite a lot of ups and downs. So it's not a so-called walk in the park. Uh, <laughs> it is, you know, you have to be a bit fit and maybe we're not quite in perfect Camino shape yet. So I remember certainly on that second day, yeah, some of the ups were were quite uh, difficult. But we got through it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I know thinking back to when we walked the Gata last year, that was something that a lot of people said uh, how difficult it was going to be. We were warned about that quite a lot, um, that people found the ups and downs really difficult. Uh, Perhaps because that was towards the end of a very long Camino for us, what what ended up being a 60-day Camino, we were quite fit and quite in shape by the time we got to that point, and so we hardly felt the ups and downs at all. Yeah, I remember one particular time where we got to basically the top of this supposed hard up and hadn't really realized that it had started yet. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I haven't compared the distance, the the elevation changes or anything like that. But I would say, just anecdotally, certainly the CPI is is more physically difficult than the Gator for sure. Mm, it, it definitely feels that way to us. Yeah. Uh, one of the other things that I really loved, actually, probably, certainly my favorite uh, part of the first four days was a stepping stone bridge that we crossed over a river. And, you know, we've crossed stepping stone bridges before. And actually, after we crossed this one, we crossed another one like 20 minutes later. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's not incredibly uncommon on the Camino. But this one in particular, gosh, it was just so beautiful. It was in this country area that seemed like uh, the Shire or Hobbiton from Middle Earth. Mm-hmm. Like it was this absolute idyllic country scene where you had this river and you could hear the sound of the water gushing. You had these wildflowers, uh, you had trees, you had the the sun shining on the water and so the water was sparkling. And then you had these quite rough hewn uh, steps. And it was quite a long stepping stone bridge. There were probably, what, 20 steps? Yeah, I'd say probably at least that number. Maybe 25, and they're quite large, mm-hmm. and they're quite high off the, well, I mean, certainly at the time that we crossed, quite high above the level of the water. Mm-hmm. Um, we've seen photos where it looks like the water is higher, and so it's uh, you're, you're closer to the water when you're making your steps. Yeah, and we had read that, you know, if there's been a lot of rain, then it may not be possible, and then in that case, you would have to walk along the road and not do that, which would be really unfortunate. And that was quite interesting because, yeah, as I said, it was quite, it felt quite high above the water, so yeah. you would imagine if there had been a lot of rain, wow, the level of the river, the water level would be really high. Yeah, and th- so when we call it a stepping stone bridge, I mean, it's not just a matter of, oh, here's a big stone, let's put it in this spot, and then let's find another big stone and put it in the next spot. Um, it's It would have been quite a, an undertaking to create this thing, because these were really massive mm, boulders. Well, they're like pylons. Yeah, yeah. They're like stone pylons, but they're very much roughly cut. It's not an industrial... No. Um, 
construction in any way, shape, or form. So yeah, it would have been, I don't know exactly when it was built. Um, but the, the whole area was just so beautiful and it was really, yeah, I just, I just really loved it. And so at one point you were sitting on one of the stones at the end and you'd taken your shoes off because you were having a footbath in the river. Mm-hmm. And then a local farmer came along and mm-hmm. he wanted to cross. Um, and so, you know, you had to quickly put your shoes on and, and get off the rock. But, you know, just to see the, the way that the local people use it. Um, was just also really interesting and it just added to the whole atmosphere of the place. Um, he was much better at crossing it than I was too. He just sped right across that thing, jumping from stone to stone where I was very cautious and it, it was a little bit unnerving. I mean, it was fun. It was a, it felt like an adventure, but uh, sometimes they were kind of far apart. And so it was a little bit nerve wracking. Yeah. I mean, maybe he's crossed it every day for 50 years. And yeah. <laughs> so it's just second nature to him. Um, and the other interesting thing though is that we had seen pictures of it and pictures from above and you could see all these stones but when we got there there was quite a lot of overgrown greenery um, which hid some of the stones from 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 certain angles but um, that just added to the beauty of it as as well and so anyway I mean it's just a stepping stone bridge but for me that was the highlight of the third day and that was my favorite day out of those first four days um, partly because of that but also just the scenery in general throughout the day was really great. The other thing that we started to see, because by that point we'd sort of come out of the forest and we were, uh, you know, later in that day we were in this more open area and it was a lot of kind of shrubland, which doesn't sound very attractive, mm-hmm. um, but actually it was because um, a huge number of these shrubs had yellow flowers and it just created this, this explosion of yellow all along the valley. Mm-hmm. And we later found out that these, well, in Portuguese, are called siesta, uh, siesta, and in English they're called broom, mm-hmm. uh, and sometimes it's called uh, English broom in Australia, I believe, or sometimes it's called Scottish broom. And we didn't, you know, this is not really exactly our specialty, so we didn't really know about this. But then you were reading about the origin of the name, and it is actually related to what you usually think of with broom. Yes, I believe that that is the origin of the English word broom because brooms were made out of this plant. Not the yellow flower, obviously, but the twigs. Um, for whatever reason, you know, the twigs of this particular bush worked well as a broom. So people would gather them and create a broom using these. Um, that was what I understood from from the Galego Dictionary, actually. The, the name in Galego is Shesta, and that kind of rang a bell for me and that's how we figured out what the name was in Portuguese and from there eventually we got to the English because we saw these beautiful yellow flowers everywhere and didn't know what they were called because we're not really botanist um, <laughs> but uh, eventually we figured out and yeah it's called broom and that was really nice because we've obviously been walking you know among wildflowers as well and last year we walked among a lot of wildflowers on the Communion Ascent, but we, I don't remember seeing these ones, or certainly not you know, in these huge numbers that we saw here. And really it was only for about two days that we saw these broom uh, shrubs, and we saw huge numbers of them, and, they, and then, then they disappeared. Once we hit the Dodo region, then they were just gone. Yeah. And we didn't see them in the first couple of days either when we were in that forested region. So it was, it was interesting to see this, whether it's microclimate or... or uh, something like that, just to have these uh, really interesting 
plants for a small period. And I don't know if it's just because it's springtime that we have the yellow. I assume that it is. So maybe if you yeah. look at other times of year, you won't see that color. But that was really something special as well to see. Yeah, I'm color. sure that it's just this time of year when they're blooming. I don't know exactly how long that lasts. But I think we were really lucky to be here at the right time to see that. And actually, one of the places that we stayed in Bigorn was, um, well, it was a house attached to a restaurant. And the name of the restaurant was Agiesta, named after this flower. Which was actually how we figured it out. That kind of was what made the penny drop for me when I saw that. So that shows that it is a very, you know, distinctive feature of that region. Right. So blooming brooms are an unexpected highlight of the CVI. Certainly not something that we were aware of before we started walking. So yesterday we woke up in Lamego, which is a town that we also visited on the Camino Torres, and we'd actually already been there bef once before as well. And so when you cross the Dora River, you, there are two Caminos, the Torres and the CPI, that both go through there. And so, I mean, it's interesting because from Lamego, you basically have two different routes. One is the Torres and one is the CPI, but they meet up later on. And so I don't believe there's any real reason to have two separate paths. Mm. Um, I can't imagine that there's a historic reason or any other reason at all. But once you get to this village, which is called Sande, that's very clear. It's very clearly marked with manufactured marking signs that says the Torres is one way and the CPI is another way. So last year when we were on the Torres, we walked the Torres route. And then this year we almost walked the Torres route again uh, because we because it, we kind of knew that it would be the better route. We'd sort of yeah. figured it out and we were looking at the two routes and we'd read some things about the CPI route. In the end, we decided to just do the CPI route and it's interesting in its own right, but they do meet up. So no matter which one you're doing, you can choose which of these routes that you walk. And I would recommend the Torres as the better route. And we had an incredible day last year on the Torres that we talked about uh, last season in our podcast. This year, we didn't, we weren't as lucky with the weather. Mm -hmm. uh, we had a very overcast day yesterday, and it's also quite hazy. In the Iberian Peninsula right now, we're in one of these um, periods that happens once in a while where we're getting the so-called Saharan dust storm. And so some parts of southern Spain um, are really inundated with this dust. And, you know, I think it turns some skies orange and towns orange and all this kind of stuff. And we had this just a, a couple of months ago. And so we didn't have anything to that extent here, but it was a hazy day. And last year we had an absolutely amazing, you know, complete blue sky day. So it wasn't quite as nice of a day. And there also we had seen that there was rain forecast for the afternoon. And later there was a storm alert for pilgrims, which was put out by the CPI on their social media. So we decided to walk the CPI route just because we knew that the views weren't going to be as good as they were last year anyway. And we were kind of intrigued by it because we'd read something in Kronse about how part of the route that used to be walkable was no longer walkable. And then you had to do an alternative, which wasn't as good. And for some reason, I think we just had this idea. So let's just check this out for ourselves and see if we can figure out what's going on, because it seemed a bit unusual the way it was written. Yeah, it was very confusing. And even having walked it, I'm still confused about what was written <laughs> in Goronte. I don't think they got it exactly right. Um, so I was a little bit wary going. I mean, it also, again, made it kind of an adventure to see, oh, what's going to happen? Are we going to be able to cross the river? Because also we had heard from someone who had just who's just walking a few days ahead of us. And he had warned us 
through the forum that because um, we actually we had asked him um, when we saw these you know confusing things on Gronte we asked him what was his experience walking and it turned out that he got completely lost he's like I ended up in the river and I had to you know tear my way through all this shrubbery and it was very wild and you I didn't find the right way so you're better off trying to find the right way and so we thought oh my goodness what what are we getting ourselves into but in the end it was pretty straightforward it was pretty straightforward so i don't know what happened to him i mean we don't have we, it's going to be hard in podcast form to go into completely the details of this and it's probably not important um but i did write a post on the community of santiago forums basically explaining the situation with the Gronse instructions and how to go the correct way but basically they say there's a gate that blocks the path and that's not really true and they say there's no longer any arrows uh, going down to this tributary river and going over the bridge, which is also not really true. So it is possible to walk either the CPI route or the Torres route, and they both meet up just before you cross the actual Dora River on the footbridge. But if you're doing either Camino, I would recommend walking the Torres route. It's slightly longer, but as we talked about in our last season, it's absolutely spectacular. And which isn't to say that the CPI route wasn't nice. You still walk through vineyards, you still go down into this gorge, and the bridge that we did actually cross was quite interesting because it mm -hmm. was a very significant bridge, and basically it's in complete disuse now in terms of uh, for vehicles. Mm -hmm. And there is a, this gate does block vehicle traffic. It doesn't block foot traffic. Um, but it was very overgrown, but we walked across it, and it was kind of interesting in its own right. But if you want really the absolute best of the Doro, then the Torres route from Sandy is uh, the better route, I would say. Yeah. And then you, they both meet up again in Peso de Regua, so if you want to continue on on the interior, you can still do it from there. Right, and so once we hit Peso de Regua, yes, then we then started climbing again on either route, because this happened to us last year, you do have to go up quite a bit quite early coming out of Peso de Regua, but I remember last year being quite difficult, more difficult than, yes. than this year. But it was a long day for us yesterday. We did about 26 kilometers, and originally we hadn't planned to go that far, but then it just made sense to go a bit further than our original plan for a number of reasons. But unfortunately, then the storm alert came, and then we were a little bit worried that we were going to get caught in a downpour because the alert included hail, it included thunder. Um, but we were lucky. It took us until about 4 p.m. until we arrived in our albergue last night, and we missed the, the rain. And it did rain a bit later. It didn't, it didn't storm as much in that area mm. as it had been forecast to. Maybe the storm came somewhere else and we just kind of missed it, or maybe the storm just wasn't as bad anywhere. Um, and I'm sure it, it did rain a little bit, and I'm sure it rained overnight as well, um, but we got lucky to miss the storm. Yeah, it, it was rain, but it wasn't a massive thunderstorm, hailstorm, like what was forecast. So that was good. And the other thing that was really interesting about last night was that you had called the day before to the albergue to ask if they were open, because we'd been told that they might not be open. Or that they might be occupied. They might be occupied. And then we subsequently realized once we got there and started talking with the lady there that the albergue had hosted some Ukrainian refugees uh, earlier in the month, and they had stayed there for about two weeks, and then they had found work in, in, Porto. in Porto, and so then they had moved out. And so they weren't taking pilgrims at that time because they had the refugees, which is, which is really great that they were able to host those refugees. But it turned out that they've now left the albergue and we were able to stay there. But when you made your booking, they said there are two other uh, people staying there as well. And right from the start, we were confused because we thought, you know, they can't really be doing what we're doing because we would have seen them or, if, or seen them in the register or, mm. you know, 
we didn't think that they could have been behind us and then they would have had to have done an enormous day to reach the the albergue because we already did a pretty big day ourselves. Anyway, and so we were kind of confused. And then we met them and it turns out that there are these two Portuguese guys who are walking the uh, road, which is called the Estrada Nacional 2, so the, the N2 is what we call it. And it's an old highway that traverses the entire length of Portugal north to south from Chaves, which is in the far north, and that's the second last stop of our Camino, to Faro, which is in the far south, that's the capital of the Algarve. And so 75 years ago, or a little bit more than that, in 1945, they built this road, and it's subsequently been superseded as a highway. There's now a brand new highway, or a highway that's, you know, a few years old, which is, you know, a typical modern highway where it doesn't go through any towns and you've got to take exits to, to get off it and whatnot. But this other highway is basically similar to the American Route 66. You know, it's kind of the, the very first stage of highway building where it still goes through these towns. And so here in Portugal, there's quite a lot of nostalgia, like for Route 66. And so people often do these driving road trips on this highway. And it's cool because you get to go through the places that it goes through. And actually last year when we were in Lamego, we went to the tourist office looking for a stamp. Mm-hmm. And they said, we've only got this... Um, the N2 stamp. The N2 driving stamp. That was when we first heard about it. We had no idea that N2 was a thing. I mean, we had probably seen signs for it before, but we didn't know that it was this special highway until the woman working at the tourism office in Lamego explained to us last year that the reason she had the stamp was because there were people who, you know, were driving the highway as a as an activity and that they also had little booklets, you know, credenciais, um, that they would stop and get stamps along the way. And we actually got offered one of these N2 stamps today as well. So yes. The N2 stamp is, is alive and well. Anyway, but so, you know, to go on these little road trips is, is fine. You can sort of see the nostalgia for it. But these guys are walking the whole highway mm-hmm. and it's over 750 kilometers. And the funny thing is that here on the CPI, we're, we're quite close to this highway, you know, for a good portion of the CPI. Um, but the point is always to try to avoid it. Mm-hmm. And so very occasionally uh, you have to go up to it and then you'll see in, in the descriptions in Kronthe, for example, they'll say, oh, you know, now you have to walk one kilometer on the, on the N2. And so this is a mm. bad stretch or something. Right. But then, you know, eventually you get off it. And so we've gone up to it, I don't know, a couple of times, you know, and today we spent maybe two kilometers, which is the longest stretch that we've spent on, the, on this highway. So we're not, we're not walking on it very much, but when you are walking on it, you wish that you weren't. Sure. And yeah. Have- I mean, that's always the the <laughs> objective is to try to get a- away from the highway as often as you can. Whereas these guys are literally walking only on the highway the entire time. And so sometimes there's a shoulder and you can, you know, w- walk you know, on the side of the white lines. And sometimes there's not. No. When we walked today, the last stretch into Villa Real, for part of that, there was no shoulder at all. And the and Gronte, they had warned that this was the most dangerous stretch of the whole Camino, the whole CPI, uh, because you are walking right next to the cars without a new shoulder. So he, they must be doing that quite often. Yeah. And so they're both walking in fluorescent shirts to be visible mm-hmm. to cars. And I don't know, I mean, all power to them. I'm sure it's going to be an amazing experience in its own way. But it's just really funny that we're yeah, trying to avoid this road at all costs. And, and 
for the most part, are very successful in that. And, mm-hmm. you know, the Camino takes you away from this road. That's the whole point of it. Yeah, that's the other thing is that there is this whole Camino that, you know, goes more or less parallel to the road. I mean, we are going to be following the N2 pretty much the whole time we're on the CPI, and yet we're not very often going to be literally on the N2. So there is this very beautiful, very scenic alternative that they could be taking, and yet they're choosing to walk you know, on the asphalt the entire time. They, you know, were complaining about they had blisters and how hard it was on their feet and walking right next to the cars. And, you know, I mean, I don't I don't want to judge because I'm sure there are lots of people who don't get it at all when we try to explain what we do on the Camino. They think, why on earth would you do that? But yeah, I do think looking at them, why on earth would you do that? Particularly when there are other ways. If you want to walk the entire length of Portugal, awesome. We did it last year and it was amazing. But, you know, there's a much better way to do it than walking on a highway. You can walk out in nature and, you know, go through tiny villages and there are just better ways of doing it on Camino and not on the highway. But anyway, it's interesting that uh, that, that is a thing that some people are doing. All right, so moving on to some practical matters regarding the CPI that we've observed so far. Firstly, I would say the way marking in general has been quite good. Yeah, it has. I mean, it has varied a bit from one, let's say, district to another, uh, which we have also experienced before. Yeah, it's a little feature of the Camino in in Portugal that you do have this. um, And so, yeah, it's a little bit inconsistent. When you're walking, you're not really aware of whether you're crossing from one district to another. And so you might see that the signage is very good and then suddenly it might not be that good. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, that's part, I mean, coming back to the issue of building a Camino, that's also part of the challenge, I think. And we saw it definitely on the Nascent last year and now we're seeing it on the CPI, is that there's a very localized government support for these Caminos at the regional level and then even at the district level. But sometimes there's no oversight at the at the national level or overall trying to regulate this kind of stuff. You know, we would see last year on the Nascent, sometimes there would be a placard and it would be talking about a stage of the Camino. Mm-hmm. But the stage began at the border of their district and ended at the far border of their district, but just in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. It's not an actual real stage. No, often there wasn't even a town or a village or anything at the start of the stage. It was just, you know, on the random border that's, yeah, literally in the middle of nowhere. They'd, you know, call this the beginning of the stage when clearly that's not where people are actually starting. Right. Um, And so, you know, we'd also heard stories about how waymarking, you know, would end at the end of a district and then the next district would start their waymarking in a different spot mm. on the border. And so you'd literally just run out of arrows at a certain point and not understand why. And then you'd have to pick up the other arrows, which would be some distance away, things like that. So for the first three days, uh, we had very good waymarking, which was done with manufactured signs, uh, you know, with blue squares with arrows, uh, which, you, which you do see in Portugal. So we weren't uh, relying on painted arrows, which, as we said last time, you know, proper manufactured signs are always better. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're more visible. Mm-hmm. They feel more trustworthy mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, because anybody could kind of paint a yellow arrow on a rock. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was fine. Then we did notice on the fourth day that those arrows basically disappeared and we were back to painted arrows. And then, you know, through most of the door section, that's what it was. 
with occasionally manufactured errors. And then today we saw something new that we'd really never seen before, which just right in the last few kilometers heading into Villa Heal, which is we saw at the entrance to three villages, we saw a sign specifically saying Comunio Portuguese Interior, and then giving the services that were in that village. Mm-hmm. And this was for the pilgrims. It was on this... Like know, a post. Like a post, you know, giving you waymarking for the Camino and then saying, okay, in this village there's a church, there's a supermarket, there's a cafe or a bar or, or whatever it happens to be. Um, and, you know, that's great information. tells mm-hmm. you what to expect in your village and if you want to know if there's a bar or a shop or something. But, again, we've never seen that. We've never seen that anywhere in Portugal. Mm. And then suddenly today for three villages we saw it. So we don't know if we're going to see that, you know, going forward or just maybe till the end of this district or, or whatnot. But overall, the waymarking has been very good. We have the GPS tracks also, and a couple of times there's been some differences between mm-hmm. the tracks and the arrows, but we've sorted it out. Okay, we took a wrong turn here or there, um, but you know, soon enough you kind of realize it and, and go back and it's all fine. Yeah, we haven't had any major difficulties, but yeah, I wouldn't want to do it just with, well, I wouldn't want to do it just with the tracks either because that has gotten us into trouble once and I also wouldn't want to do it just with the arrows. So it's good to have both, I think, to be able to consult and compare. Right. And then the other thing that we've been talking about is that there are quite a few albergues here on the CPI, which is seems disproportionate to the number of pilgrims. And you mentioned last time that you had read that one of the albergues used to be a school. Well, it turns out that all three of the albergues that we've stayed at uh, so far were once schools. Yep, and the one that we're going to stay in tomorrow has also was originally a school. And that that is, uh, yeah, definitely a pretty large-scale project, I think, that was uh, undertaken some years ago. What Did you remember the years there was a sign about it on the place where we stayed last night in Bertello um, about the the revitalization of these primary schools. And I think it was from 2007 to 2012 or something like that. So yeah, I think that was a, a big project because there are lots of unused schools, particularly primary schools in villages because of depopulation and, you know, there just aren't school-aged children anymore. So whereas previously you used to have a school in every village, now you'll have just a school in every freguesia. So there might be three different villages in that freguesia, but only one of those villages will have the school. And then if there are any children living in the other villages, then they would have to go to that school. So now you have all of these empty school buildings. And in this area, they have had this project where they are renovating them and turning them into other other services and particularly albergues. And I've been really, really impressed with the links that they've gone to. It's not just a matter of, okay, let's uh, move these school desks out of the way and we'll put a couple of bunk beds in. You know, they really have completely renovated the buildings. For the most part, they have fully equipped kitchens and um, they're really nice places to stay. No, definitely. And it's this huge project, like you said, and, you know, there's European Union funding and and all this kind of stuff. Um, And, you know, it is sad on the one hand that the schools are no longer being used, but it's great that they've repurposed them because otherwise they would just eventually just become abandoned buildings. Yeah, definitely. And so it was interesting that where we're going tomorrow, we had heard that there's this albergue and you had called them or you had seen on the web that within this this village or, or, or within this district, there are five 
of these schools that have kind of all been turned into sort of albergues, not all for pilgrims, really, because it, it doesn't make sense to have so many so close. And some of them, or most of them, I think, aren't actually on our route. But yeah. they've sort of turned them into this budget accommodation for groups or families or maybe multiple families traveling together who are looking for accommodation in the countryside somewhere that's affordable for them. Yeah, they have a whole website about it just for these five albergues in in and around this town of Vila Poca da Aguiar. And yeah, I assume well, the one that we are going to is on the Camino, but I assume that the other four are not. I didn't recognize the names of the towns at all, but yet they're all calling them albergues. So yeah, they are hostels, you know, they all have dorm beds, they all have fully equipped kitchens. Um, but yeah, it's just an, uh, like you said, a service for people who want to get out into nature, into the countryside. And anyone is is welcome to stay there. They don't take reservations. So um, when I called, they said, you know, we can't guarantee that you'll have a bed, but I, I think it would be highly unlikely if all 10 of the bunks were full. We'll find out when we get there. And that's those five uh, albergues in particular that don't take reservations. We've made yes. reservations. We've called a, a, a day in advance for these other three places and, and had no problems. Sometimes you have to call a few different numbers. Uh, yeah. You call someone, they'll say, no, you need to call this number because, you know, they're not being staffed by hospitaleros uh, who are there, you know, full time or anything like that. In most cases, it's people who work for the Junto de Freguesia, the local government. Or last night, it was people who worked in the retirement home or the old age home that was nearby and they were the ones who actually let us in and cooked dinner for us, which was very nice. Yeah, yeah, for that one in Bartolo, because it's really in the middle of nowhere, which I found very strange as, uh, you know, considering that it used to be a school. I don't understand why they would have built a school there in the first place, because there was no village. There were a few isolated houses scattered around the hills, uh, you know, within walking distance, but... Um, yeah, there was no kind of, of population center at all, uh, which meant that there were no cafes or restaurants or any services of any kind. It was just a building in the middle of nowhere. So when you call to reserve, they will ask you if you would like to also reserve dinner and breakfast. And um, we reserved dinner, and so they brought it to us in a basket. And uh, I believe that it's probably the same food that's made for the, um, the people who live in the nursing home. And then they just bring some of that over. And the woman was very nice, very helpful. And, um, yeah, it's great that they provide that service. Yeah, so we have this whole network of albergues. We have pretty good waymarking signs. All we need are pilgrims. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, you know, the CPI could become, you know, the next big thing on the Camino de Santiago. Yeah, and it's definitely, you know, deserving of more more pilgrims and more attention than it's currently getting because it's a really beautiful route. And, yeah, I don't expect it to become the next Camino Frances anytime soon, but, you know, I think it's it's definitely a great option for people who want to see a different side of Portugal. All right, so we'll see what it has in store for us over the next few days. Until then, bon camino. And buen camino. Thanks for listening. For more great content about the Camino de Santiago, visit our website at spiritofthecamino.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Spirit of the Camino. Buen Camino.